From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. When OpenAI launched ChatGPT on November 30th of 2022 and made it accessible to the public for free, a new season of AI began around the world. AI has been studied and speculated about by researchers since the 1950s, and over the decades there have been stops and starts with incremental progress along the way. But since the emergence of what's called generative AI, using what are called large language models, or LLMs, which ChatGPT is the first well known publicly available example of, we've seen a massive surge of similar models and tools that harness their power, and these tools are continuing to improve and become more powerful and versatile with each passing day. But what it all means for individuals, our communities, our countries, and even the world remains to be seen. There will undoubtedly be benefits in many fields, but there's also great concern that such power could bring problems that we may not even be able to imagine yet, including job and industry disruptions. To get some context and a snapshot of where we're at right now in the world of generative AI and large language models, I sat down recently with Dr. Chris Ann Reilly. She's an artificial intelligence and machine learning researcher and strategist, and she's a management instructor in Florida Gulf Coast University's Luttgert College of Business, and she is provost faculty fellow for AI here at FGCU. I spoke with her back on February 15th. Dr. Reilly, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you. Happy to be back. So we had you on the show last September, so about five months ago. Uh, But in the world of generative AI, a lot's transpired since then, right? It sure has. How closely do you keep up with this and how do you do that? (sighs) That's a really great question. And I get asked that question a lot. Honestly, I have gotten to the point where I will budget time every day during my coffee time. That's when I pull up the headlines. I'm reading about ChatGPT, BARD, or actually BARD is now Gemini. And I really, um, it got to the point because I was getting inundated with so much information that I had to calendar it. Hmm. So I actually have coffee and ChatGPT time. Wow. Remind our listeners what your background is when it comes to this kind of stuff. Sure. So... Before I entered academia, and I'm in my 14th year um, with academia, before I entered that, I worked for about 19 years in industry. And specifically, I worked for one company for almost 10 years. We had our own proprietary decision support systems. And I used to go out to hospitals and healthcare organizations, and I would sell this technology. And in addition to selling it, I wasn't just the salesperson. I was a management consultant. So I would walk into production facilities, and I would talk to the maintenance workers. Tell me what preventive maintenance task you perform on a daily basis. A lot of them had no post-it notes. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, well, what happens if the wind comes in and blows and blows all your post-it notes around? And they said, well, that's a problem. So I worked with them on developing decision support services systems in order to help bring some organization, some structure, just really uh, helping them to develop data-driven decision-making 
that was really key. So I worked on preventive maintenance, labor efficiency, shipping, billing, receiving, order production planning. And I did that for nine, almost 10 years. And I really got grounded in that technology. And I loved it. It was so much fun. I loved building the technology. I loved working with the people at the plant, understanding their processes, and then modifying our technology to meet their needs. It was fantastic. So when I left uh, that particular position, I said, okay, I'll be back. (laughs) I was like, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I will be back. (laughs) And sure enough, I when I came over into academia and started working on my dissertation at the University of South Florida, when it came time to select my dissertation topic, my professors gave me some advice. And that advice was, pick something that you really have a passion for. So I knew, thinking back to my previous experience, I had a passion for decision support services and By today's standards, those would actually be considered artificial intelligence. And at the same time, I also wanted to combine that with ethics because I also teach ethics courses. So I said, why not marry my two loves? So I wrote my dissertation, and my dissertation was on the ethics of artificial intelligence. And four years later, I am deep into AI. I live and breathe it every day. Hmm. And it's awesome. Give us some first principles for listeners. Um, Give us a basic definition of what we mean today when we say AI. Uh. Um, And then what we mean by generative AI. And I think there's a lot of overlap now. But explain what those two terms mean. Yeah. Um, I'm chuckling a little bit because there are so many variances and so many differences about how people perceive AI. And just as an example, when I worked on my dissertation, I interviewed 16 technology experts from a variety of different industries, everything from the airline industry to healthcare to high tech. And one of the questions that I asked, how do you define artificial intelligence? All 16 of those executives provided a different definition. So there are a lot of definitions out there. One way that I like to describe it is to think of it as the technology is helping to automate decision-making that humans would normally do. But on top of that, the technology is also making predictions, predictions about future behaviors. And oftentimes, uh, an example I always like to tell my students, think about Amazon. When you log into the Amazon portal and you start searching for a product, usually down there at the bottom of the screen, you'll see something that says other customers have purchased similar products. So they will give you recommendations. Um, Sometimes you accept those recommendations and sometimes you don't. But technology, especially AI, has this prediction quality, which is key. So... That's the AI piece. Now, it's interesting in that AI has actually been around since the early 1950s. And throughout the years, it's had its ups and downs. Interest, public interest has waned and waxed since the 1950s. The current upswing that we are in now started about 2010. It's really been very incremental until ChatGPT was introduced back in, and I remember the day, 
I do too. <laughs> November 30th of 2022. Mm-hmm. And all bets were off at that point. Which um, is only like a year and four months ago. I know. And actually, in our house, we held a birthday celebration for ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had a cupcake with a candle and one candle. But uh, so when we think about generative AI, generative AI actually has the capability when you provide an input and the input comes in the form of a prompt, it is going to provide an output that answers your question or provides the information that you are seeking. Now, one of the things that makes generative AI very unique is the fact that when you ask that first question through the prompt, it'll provide an output, but you might look at the output and say, that really wasn't what I was looking for. I want to go back to the drawing board and I want some additional information. Rather than having to restart that conversation with generative AI, generative AI holds on to that initial prompt and it gives you the option to be able to go in and ask for additional information. So it's similar to a human, (laughs) just like when you have a conversation with a human. The human is able to store that initial prompt, that initial discussion, and then you can come back and revisit it. Generative AI will do that. Regular AI doesn't function that way. You provide an input, you ask it for a question, it provides an output, and it's done, and it moves on to the very next task. But generative AI gives you this ability to have a conversation with the technology and to have this back-and-forth dialogue with it. And that's something that makes generative AI very unique. Are you familiar with um, the Turing test? I, I am. Um, give us a brief explanation. Uh, yes, Alan Turing, Alan Turing. Alan Turing uh, was a very well-known researcher from the 1950s. And interestingly enough, back in 1950, he came up with this idea that when a technology like an AI produces an output, when we receive that output as a human, can we recognize that that output was generated by an AI or not. And it's fascinating that he had that thought back in the 1950s, because that is exactly what we are facing with Mm -hmm. ChatGPT today. Some people think that the most advanced models have passed it for sure. Yeah. So we're we're getting there. I uh, I sat down with ChatGPT and had a little conversation, (laughs) if you'll bear with me. Um, So I said, can you please explain what the Turing test is? Okay. So the Turing test is a measure of, the mach- of a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior indistinguishable from that of a human. It was introduced by British mathematician Alan Turing, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the test is often used as a benchmark for evaluating the conversational capabilities and overall intelligence of artificially intelligent systems. Now, again, this is being written by a system. Mm-hmm. I said, do you think you're able to pass the Turing test as a generative AI model? So the Turing test is a subjective assessment, and it depends on the specific criteria used by judges. While I am a powerful generative AI model and can generate human-like text responses, passing the Turing test would ultimately depend on the complexity of the conversation and the judgment of the human evaluator. Wow. I said, from your perspective, do you think it's possible for an advanced generative AI model to someday easily pass a Turing test? And it said... 
The advancement of generative AI models has been remarkable, and future models may indeed become more sophisticated in their ability to generate human-like text. However, passing a Turing test remains a challenging goal. The test not only involves generating coherent and contextually appropriate responses, but also requires understanding the nuances of human language, emotions, and diverse topics. Then I took the last sentence that it wrote, and I had it create. I used a free online tool to have it create this voice. Achieving true comprehension, consciousness, and the ability to engage in conversations across a wide range of topics with the same depth and flexibility as humans is a complex task. While future AI models may continue to improve, it's uncertain whether they will easily surpass the Turing test as it involves addressing fundamental challenges in natural language understanding and contextual reasoning. Mm -hmm. Researchers are continually working on enhancing AI capabilities. But the complete replication of human-like intelligence remains a complex and evolving field. And again, that was a free online tool that I had the conversation with, and that was a free online tool that I created the soundbite with. This would have been science fiction just a few years ago, and now it's something that anyone on the planet can, with an internet connection can do. Well, that's one of the really interesting things. In this era of generative AI, we have started seeing these open source developments that have been put forward. And if you think about it, a lot of people are excited about this technology, and People are experimenting. They're coming up with these new and innovative tools, and they are introducing them and sharing them with the world. I think that's really pretty cool. Are you concerned? I am, as an ethicist. Um, I think it's. I think we do need some guardrails. How would we I create really guardrails from your perspective? <laughs> Especially, you mentioned the term open source, meaning yeah. that uh, OpenAI makes ChatGPT, Google makes BARD. Those, they have, it's proprietary. They can have some control over it. But open source means somebody creates a tool, puts it out into the world, and then anybody can then modify it however they so see fit. So the guardrails are off if it gets out into the world. So how do we create, broadly speaking, guardrails? Well, you know what? I, it's interesting. The million dollar, the trillion dollar question. Okay. Well, I'm ready to go to the bank because I have an answer good, for that good, one. Good, good, good. <laughs> so we actually have a few models. Um, that we can call upon to help us develop these guardrails. Um, the first one being, think about Wikipedia. Now, I know a lot of times in academia, we tend to shy away from Wikipedia. But if we actually sit down and look at it as a business model, you have people that have a passion for the internet and for sharing information. And these folks operate under the premise, we need an open source tool that is high quality that we can share with the public. So you actually have different editors within Wikipedia. Yes, they're volunteers. Many of them actually work in the technology space. They have full-time jobs during the day. They're programmers, but they have such a passion for sharing knowledge and making knowledge accessible to everyone out in the community that they have created this informal community online. And it's interesting because over the years, it has developed some structure. 
They have standards. They have processes that have been established. So even though everyone is doing this on a volunteer basis, this internal structure has emerged. And when you have this internal structure, that internal structure is helping to establish quality standards and guardrails, meaning they have standards now for what information to include as part of Wikipedia and what information needs to be excluded. So that's one example. Another example is GitHub. So GitHub, you have a lot of programmers and software developers that have a real passion for technology. And they formed this GitHub community online as a place to share their developments. There are whole sub-communities within GitHub that focus on competitions, that focus on AI, machine learning. There's actually a lot of new and innovative ideas that have emerged from GitHub. So I think if we can look at those models and find a way to capture those best practices, I think those best practices can be transferred to generative AI. Hmm. Now, the other thing is the government is making some strides in that area. Um, California, for example, has established about three years ago, they actually established standards for if you are interacting with a bot and you're in California or you're interacting with a California-based company, they're required to disclose that you are interacting with a bot. And I think that makes a lot of good sense for all of us. Um, this whole explainable artificial intelligence and this whole idea around transparency, I think, is really key. So the fact that California is requiring their companies to do that, I know some other states are evaluating that. Certainly here in Florida, the Florida legislation, starting in January, they started having some conversations and discussions around political ads um, when political ads are using artificial intelligence to generate the videos, they are considering including a disclaimer. This was generated by AI to help educate and inform all of us. In addition, they're also looking at developing an advisory committee, people from academia, from business that are able to provide some wise counsel when it comes to uh, establishing these guardrails. I think that's key. I um, I was digging around and I found uh, the European um, law enforcement agency Europol said that they are speculating that by the year 2030, almost 90 percent of content on the Internet might be generated by AI. What I'm concerned about is like I spent a lot of time on Reddit and I'm used to now thinking that anything that I'm reading may have been generated by a non-human. Even comments, even replies to comments yeah. might be bots. Yeah. What if somebody can create like, you know, a million bots and just flood the Internet with information that's not real? Like how do you – how does anything you just described begin to address like that – no longer science fiction <laughs> speculation, you know? I mean, it's, yeah. it feels like I feel like it could break the Internet in some ways. It could. Um, I mean, I'm being kind of pessimistic, but it doesn't seem like science fiction. Well, you know, um, 
we are getting <laughs> we are getting closer to uh, science fiction with the technology and how sophisticated it has been. Um, as I said previously, uh, AI, the development was really very stair stepish. It was very incremental up until ChatGPT. Yeah. Um, and ChatGPT really accelerated things. Um, frankly, I think it really needs to be a combination. I think we do need some government focused guardrails, but there's a balance. We can't, the government can't put these guardrails in place and totally prohibit the development and growth of this technology. There are too many uh, benefits. Oh, yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm so, not saying there aren't many, many potential upsides that could make humanity's lives better, you know? There are. There are. Um, but we have to find that balance. Yeah. And I think grassroots efforts can be a good way to do that. And that's looking at some of these open source models. Um, also, I think uh, the trade, many of the trade associations, um, IEEE, which focuses on the engineering group, AAAI, uh, which focuses on the AI technology specifically, I know that they have stepped forward and established some guardrails. In addition, a lot of your technology providers are starting to put some protections in place. But I really think this is something where it takes all of us. Oh, yeah. And I, uh, even you and I, even this conversation that we're having, yeah. um, uh, image generation using these models has gotten to the point where I've been fooled a number of times. Like, I followed this, it's called Old School Cool. And it's oh. pictures of like, you know, it's like, a you know, this was my grandma in 1950 or whatever. And it's these cool <laughs> pictures. Yeah. And I've been fooled several times now where I saw it and I thought that's where it came from. Then I realized it actually came from like MidJourney or one of the AI tools yeah. where these images that are being created now are indistinguishable from a real photograph. Yeah. And I've heard more speculation now that we need to come up with a way – to almost like a notary concept where we can prove that our images are real mm. because trying to chase the fake ones might be overwhelming. But if we can come up with a way where we can sort of prove in a shareable way, in a way that we all agree on that this is real, that might be unless you see that symbol or that whatever, that stamp, then you have to be concerned it's not real. Does that make sense? You know what? Wow. It's like a whole different way to approach it instead of like, let's mark everything that's not real as not real. Well, let's start marking what's real as real. Wow. That's, <laughs> I think that's really cool. And, and you know what? Um, as an example, if you think about years ago when we went to the grocery store and we went and started purchasing products, there wasn't a disclaimer on there. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any sort of information about how – uh, the the foods were produced mm -hmm. and what exactly what was the composition what was the food composition what were the ingredients we never had that well there was it was a very similar situation I think in that people recognize we need to have more control we need more transparency so your food manufacturer started attaching the tags mm -hmm. we may need some sort of disclaimer that is applied to AI. But I actually really like your idea of focusing on proving yeah. that this well, is real. Because like I said before, I mean, if we can speculate that there'll be bots that can generate, you know, 
a million or a trillion images and flood the internet, you know, we might need to be able to just say, this one's real. If you don't see this thing that says it's real, watch yourself, mm -hmm. you know? You were in the in the lobby, you were sending those emails, and I half-jokingly said, we're not far away from you being able to just talk to your phone and say, hey, tell all my students in my 130 class that I'm going to be a little late, and then it'll just do that and email and even deal with that. Yeah. Um, have you seen Her, the, the Joaquin Phoenix, Scarlett Johansson movie? You know what? I from, saw the very beginning. I haven't seen the whole thing. It came but. out long enough ago that it's kind of shocking now because we're at a point now where I think that as companies start rolling out products, which we're starting to see, yeah. it's not long before you're going to have an assistant on your phone that you can just talk to. Mm -hmm. And you could have done that. You could maybe say, hey, you know, I'm running a little late. And can you tell the person I'm supposed to be meeting? And then it just does that and handles all that for you for free. I mean, that's, that's, that's not science fiction either, is it? No. And you know what? Um, one of the, the things that I see happening in the near future, Microsoft has been working very closely on developing their co-pilot mm -hmm. program. And they've been very quiet. It's interesting. They've been very quiet. They've been operating stealth. But recently, they really introduced, they rolled out uh, Microsoft Copilot. And now Copilot is embedded in virtually all of the Microsoft products. Mm -hmm. And it will, it's great, actually, when you're working on presentations or you're working on emails or you're working on Word documents, it makes suggestions. Now, we're still in the driver's seat. We as humans still have the ability to override the suggestion from the AI. But I think those types of narrow AI, I think that is really going to take off. I think we're going to see more and more of those co-pilot types of applications. And they're almost going to lead us around by the nose, <laughs> managing our calendars, managing our communications, pre-typing emails. They may make us better writers in terms of how people perceive our ability to write, Yeah. but they may make us worse writers because we don't write anymore. Yeah. You know, there's a line there. Well, it's like the cell phone. All of our phone numbers are programmed in yeah. here. And I've had it before. I've had it happen where I needed to, to call somebody. We used to remember our phone numbers. <laughs> <laughs> we did. And then all of a sudden, something happens to the phone and I can't pull it up. And it's like, oh, my hmm. gosh, how do I reach that person? How do you use ChatGPT both in your personal life and in your professional life? Ah, that's good. So um, I use ChatGPT on a regular basis. Personally, I use it for recipes. Mm -hmm. Actually, they're very interesting. There's some Pew Research Center data that came out and said one of the top reasons that people use ChatGPT is for entertainment. So a lot of people will play games. I use it for recipes. Um, sometimes I'll use it just to search fun things. Like my husband and I will be sitting on the couch watching, new, watching the news and we'll say, oh, I need to know more about that. And so we, we'll pull out our phones and we'll, we'll ask chat not Google. Yeah. We will ask chat. Um, so w I use it a lot just as a reference tool, hmm. personally. Professionally, I use it for brainstorming. Now, I do not use it for my writing. I think I'm a better writer than ChatGPT. And being a professor, you have to practice a lot. Exactly. It's very easy to lose your writing skills. Yeah. 
But I found it to be really helpful with overcoming the blank page syndrome. How many times does that happen? You're asked to do a presentation and you look at the paper and maybe scratch your head a little bit. Oh, where do I start? Why not go out to ChatGPT or Claude or Gemini and ask it to help brainstorm some ideas? And it's really good at that. Yeah. And you know what? And I, I will look at the outline and some things I'll keep and some things I'll go, hmm. I'm, I have better ideas. But it's a good way to get started and mm. get some momentum. So I use it a lot for brainstorming. Last question, and we have to be really brief. Um, this is going to be a job disruption situation for a lot of fields, right? Yeah, it is. Um, frankly, what I would tell you, though, um, a lot of jobs are going to be touched by AI in some way, shape, or form. There may be some jobs that are eliminated due to AI. There has been some data that came out with that. Um, however, those individuals have an opportunity to learn AI and develop some new skills and maybe go out and work in an AI type of position. I've told my students this, the people that are going to be successful in their future careers are the ones, they're not gonna be replaced by AI, but they may be competing with people that know how to manage AI. Well, that is all the time we have. We'll have you back. We'll keep talking about this because <laughs> like six months from now, the world of, will have changed again. Oh my um, Dr. Chrisanne Reilly is an artificial intelligence and machine learning researcher and strategist and a management instructor in Florida Gulf Coast University's Luttgert College of Business. And she's provost faculty fellow for AI at FGCU. Dr. Reilly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Bianca Massoni. Now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.